Welcome. This is Alexia Hudson-Ward, the Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TAI for short, a multimedia blog hosted by Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. We explore equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility issues that affect the higher education community. Among the goals of this channel is the development of a pool of knowledge and actionable resources for information professionals, undergraduates, faculty of all disciplines, campus staff and administrators at every level, seeking to understand racism and discrimination from new perspectives and to promote social justice on their campuses and within their communities. We are excited to welcome you to our podcast series that borrows its name from the higher education academic calendar. Therefore, you're listening to Ty's Summer Session. This Summer Session podcast features a wonderful discussion with Dr. Rasul Bowad, head of the Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism Management at North Carolina State University. He holds a PhD in leisure behavior, a master's of science in park and natural resources management, and a bachelor of science in history, all from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Part of Dr. Mowat's research centers upon critical cultural geography, with an emphasis on the compelling concept of the geographies of race and how these geographies can and should intersect with social justice efforts. Dr. Mowat is also an editorial board member of the Southeastern Division of the American Association of Geographers and served on the Commission of Race and Gender Fairness for the Indiana Supreme Court. He recently published a book titled The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, The State and City Between Us. In our conversation, we discuss race, space, and the politics of occupancy in nature for BIPOC people, and what authority over natural spaces means to which groups of people and why. Now to our conversation with Dr. Rasul Mowat. Please introduce yourself. I'm Russell Mowat, um, professor and department head at North Carolina State, uh, Department of Parks, Recreation and Tourism Management in the College of Natural Resources, and formerly a professor at um, Indiana University in the Departments of American Studies and Geography. Excellent. It is a pleasure to speak with you today, and thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. So your work is an interesting intersection examining the relationship between nature, leisure activities, and race. So how did you decide to focus on these areas for your research? Yeah, um, so it was really not more so my choice as much as forces or experiences in my life that sort of put me into this particular situation. So um, prior to academia, I worked for city government specifically within 
the areas of um, parks and recreation at the city level. Um, so it was it was a professional sort of job. I managed parks, I managed um, youth development based programs, and eventually, because of relationships with uh, professors and within the department, uh, I was brought in to guest lecture, and that turned into mm. them um, finding and coercing me into a graduate um, program. At that particular time, uh, the department um, sort of still maintained the original focus, which was leisure studies, which allows for a broader sort of viewpoint of things like tourism and sports and outdoor recreation and conservation to all sort of cohabitate in the same sort of space. Um, and so by nature of that background, both professionally as well as then within that type of academic structure, um, this leisure activities or leisure activities as well as nature were sort of components of me dealing with already something that um, I had been studying, which was race. Mm, mm. Can you expand on that a little more? You know, of course, many of us um, who are people of color have, and if we've grown up in large cities, you know, there were in, there was like a historic engagement with recreation facilities departments of parks and recreation, typically structured engagement, but never kind of contextualizing it right in the context, in the way in which you're thinking about it. So could you expand a little more on how your professional experience kind of wove or is woven into your academic lens on these particular topics? I just think it's so interesting. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And um, right, you are right to make the distinction that it is kind of different within the United States context, whereas in Canada, probably in the UK, mm-hmm. um, the term leisure is, you know, sort of understood and right. it has this sort of broad sort of ranging understanding, whereas we rarely sort of have this term that we sort of use, like, you know, what are you doing for, you know, your Friday leisure? We're not going to say that to our friends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> look at us like, although it sounds kind of cool, you know, but <laughs> you it okay? sounds very refined. Although my Fridays aren't frequently refined, but that sounds very refined. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, so no, so it's, so it's a great question for, for helping audience sort of understand the distinctive differences. So think of leisure studies as a philosophical sort of background. How do we understand things like free time and experience mm-hmm. and motivation and, um, and other sort of underpinning backgrounds? Because if you don't understand that sort of underpinning of why people may engage in something, what are you programming uh, for? You're not just programming sports leagues just to deliver sports you're trying to create social bonding you're trying to create community Mm -hmm. ties you're trying to within the sports develop competition but competition that's fair and teamwork and all these other types of things that need to also be planned Um, so it's not just scheduling the games Um, and so um, in the parks and rec uh, department well technically it was a district because in the state of Illinois, most departments that are parks and recreation are their standalone governmental entities. So people vote on on the elected board of parks and recreation entirely separate from the city. So the mayor has no mm-hmm. authority over districts um, in most parts of the state of Illinois. And so everything from museums to community centers to a rec center to a garden 
to the softball league, to the basketball tournaments, to and the particular part district I work with, there was a theater that held um, an annual movie festival. And in fact, by Roger Ebert, um, the Ebert, mm, movie, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, film festival. These are all a part of the Parks and Rec district. Yeah, you know, and so having that philosophical background of understanding motivations and social bonding and all these types of things mixed with this experience of broad-based recreation provision uh, was a good mix. And so when I came into a graduate program, I had both this sort of professional um, background alongside with this developing sort of philosophical background. So I worked for eight years within uh, City Parks and Recreation. The primary community that I worked with within was a historically Black community. Um, mm, mm-hmm. The issues that were pertinent there, um, tied to housing and issues of displacement, longstanding historical discrimination with the city and other particular institutions were prominent um, from day one. So, right, right. So matters of race being sort of categorized and identified in a particular way and treated as such. And then in turn, sort of you create, you know, your own sort of community based upon that shared sort of treatment. Um, so you then empower your, your, you know, your group to develop independent softball leagues. If we can't join the softball league, we're going to create our own, you know, if we can't, um, if we're not going to be welcomed into another park for a movie festival, we're going to create our own. Um, mm-hmm. and so matters of race became prominent as well as, you know, understanding of racism at a, a more city level as opposed to a one-on-one personal level. Yeah, thank you so much for that. You are without a doubt clearly the nation's leading expert in terms of these domains of, of thinking and understanding and these these intersections around social justice and race and leisure and nature and kind of who is allowed to occupy space right. um, in a free way versus whose space is controlled, right? And what's been compelling for me as I've you know studied some of your uh, some of your findings and, and the ways in which you iterate on many of these topics is that I honestly don't think that many people until recently saw the connections between social justice and people of color occupying like natural spaces or what sometimes people will identify as nature spaces until incidents that we're now starting to see people talk about more in social media. Right. You know, the Central Park bird watching incident, incidents of people feeling overly policed or the hyper, um, you know, kind of vigilance around why are you here? you know, or what are you doing, you know, kind of this hyper visibility. And so I'm really um, interested in hearing you, Rasul, talk about how you contextualize the relationship between social justice and leisure activities and, and how one occupies these different types of natural spaces as a person of color. Yeah. So um want to appreciate, um, you, you know, your appreciation of my work and, um, and, you know, sort of seeing how it's sort of situated. Um, so I want to provide some background responses and hopefully that sort of helps to not only answer your question, but also may get to further ways to think about answering your 
question. And so, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So whenever um, I try to think about social justice, I always try to consciously think about injustice um, because social justice is a response to injustice. And so oftentimes I think we just jump to, you know, things that we want to label as social justice, not really indicating what is the injustice that that, that particular social justice is responding to. And so, in fact, we may be doing some other type of work than actual social justice work. One of the people that really helped to inform my understanding of looking at injustice was Iris Young. And Iris Young had these five faces of, of, of oppression, you know, one of which was marginalization. Another one was exploitation. A third was powerlessness. Um, uh, a fourth was cultural imperialism. And then uh, the fifth was violence. Um, and so violence was really my main sort of focus area historically as well as in the present day. And we can feel free to jump in to talk about that at, at some particular point in our, in our discussion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that helped inform it to me, okay, then the work of social justice has to respond to either all combination of or at least one of those faces of oppression. Um, so, you know, you can't offer a program tied to food unless you acknowledge the hunger that's present. And if you don't acknowledge the hunger that's present, instead of offering the food, you may be offering something else that may not be as needed. You know, so one of the programs that we provided um, at the uh, park that I managed was a preschool. Um, So we had Mm. um, preschool and daycare upstairs in a sort of enclosed area. And that was, you know, the provision of low cost, fair and safe, um, you know, um, and it was certified, you know, child care. That was a need within the community. But that wouldn't be classically something that a recreation center would think about offering. Um, Mm -hmm. It would just Mm -hmm. think about just offering a space to throw balls based upon the sports or whatever else. But here was this facility, especially during the academic school year of most middle schools and public schools, it was vacant. It was empty during the day. Um, so how could we make use of this particular facility, you know, 24 hours a day, technically, in some particular way? And so my predecessor had started um, the preschool and I worked to get it um, head start recognized um, as well as getting it sort of, for, you know, fully sort of insured, um, hiring the appropriate certified uh, staff, and we were able to increase the capacity. And then we were also then able to get funding for the provision of um, food and federal assistance, um, mandated food. And so it was uh, sort of provided at a sort of, uh, what do you call them, staggered pay scale. You know, so some parents needed the full support, some needed partial, and some didn't need it, you know, at all. And so that was that was phenomenal. Um, but that was, in, in a way, me at a very early stage operating off of responding to the injustice um, mm-hmm. in the case, mm-hmm. you know, child care, affordable child care. So um, for me, social justice has to sort of respond to any one of those in some particular fashion. And so I could not offer any of the recreation programs, no no matter how perceived benign they were. So just a regular summer camp without trying, what, what 
oppression am I responding to, even in providing that summer camp? Um, so mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't get it stuck into the rut of just doing the basic summer camp things, you know, because we're servicing a community. You know, there were homes right across the street. People were coming from uh, to and from the day camp from literally just blocks away. So this was a true neighborhood based park and community center. And so I would have to do more than just open the door and offer what we just commonly or typically just would normally provide. Mm-hmm. 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 Additionally, um, part of, you know, my thinking is informed by other sort of spaces. Um, I have to sort of, you know, bring into the question of the influence of capitalism, you know, and the way it functions. Right. In society. Um, And one of which um, it is not just an economic system. It's a way in which, you know, it's reinforced by social relations, both, you know, of course, negative. um, That includes uh, divisions of gender, divisions of, of race. But you then have to then have that awareness to sort of realize, well, how can then we also respond to that reality? And so we have to be very, very clear um, on, you know, costs um, not being cost prohibited. If we were hiring people, um, offering fair wages and time off, um, you know, if we were dealing with um, families, you know, really sort of thinking about what they needed as opposed to what we needed from them, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so trying to recognize that while we're still living in a capitalist informed society, you know, we still have a responsibility to a community, um, even if that community may not uh, be fully appreciated by capitalism, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that totally makes sense. And, you know, as I, I think about this notion of, you know, a capitalistic informed society, you know, one of the things that I've seen play itself out, you know, and I've also, me and my family have also been subjected to, is this kind of interestingly bizarre interrogation from white people. Mm. Why are you here? What are you doing here? How did you find out about this? Yeah, yeah. How long have you been doing this? Like, Many years ago, some friends of mine, <clears throat> excuse me, and I, we used to do white water rafting. Yeah. And um, folks would literally stop to ask us, are you training for the Olympics? Like, you all are so good at this. Like, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> right. And just stood in awe of this large group of Black people, white water rafting in, in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. But there's something there around the ideas of, like, privilege and power and at leisure and space and and who has the right, you know, to be in, in air quotes, who has the right <laughs> to occupy certain spaces, right? And the ways in which I think some white people intentionally or unintentionally interrogate people of color around these spaces, right? Right. And so, I'm, or, or just engaging in the space or engaging in leisure activities, period. And so I'm really interested in hearing your perspectives around, you know, have you been having those types of conversations, undergoing that type of study? What are you thinking about in terms of helping 
white people to understand that not only is that interrogation like inappropriate, but it is situated in this kind of capitalistic response and situated within, you know, threatening responses. Yeah. Um, again, I'm, you know, I, I don't know, um, you know, basically your background in terms of living experiences, but, you know, uh, but I, I can remember distinctly, uh, of course, growing up in Chicago, um, there would be people who would walk up and down alleys, right? That was a normal route to take as a shortcut. But also you, right. you had people who might have lived in alleys, um, but you also had people who were scrap um, hunting and, and alleys because scraps could be converted into cash, whether it was right. the old Coca-Cola bottles, whether it was strips of copper um, or something to that effect. And for most part, people never called the police when they saw people walk up and down an alley because right. it was trash. Right. It was, you know, the, you know what was in the alley was trash. You you didn't sort of register that, and so you didn't register this person being somewhere that they shouldn't in some particular way. I'm only mm-hmm. using that sort of story analogy that sort of gets to how we can be conditioned to be alerted to, you know, people not being in a place or that they shouldn't be and people should be in a place. And and it's really arbitrary, but it's arbitrary relationship to what we hold of value. And so, um, so in this particular case, if we have historically had a particular park uh, that we sort of identified with, we then considered it something that we owned, air quotes, Um, And so we would be very concerned about any behavior or action or people that weren't normal to our everyday sort of experiences or we have accepted um, to be in those everyday uh, situations. And so, Mm -hmm. again, person walking in our alleys, we accepted people scrap hunting on the south side of Chicago. Um, But if a person walked down an alley in another part of the city, that relationship might not be there. Um, alleys are supposed to be vacant of people, um, both in terms of sleeping, scrap hunting, or ever walking. It is just for cars or for the weekly sort of uh, waste you know, disposal unit. So people then become suspicious. Why is this person walking amongst the trash, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we can then move that to a park. Um, we can move that to um, a city street. And all of a sudden, then that's the first layer of policing is ourselves sort of identifying who should or shouldn't be. And again, going back to, you know, what I mentioned about capitalism and how it really is dependent upon these sort of social relations that have been right. created. Um, we hold dear, prop, you know, private property. It's more it's, it's highly valuable. Um, we will protect it at all costs. And when it's threatened, um, even if it's the perce- perception of threatened, we will call all of the force possible to prevent that property value from diminishing. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, we have the history of you know, a family, just a family working, you know, moving into a neighborhood area. And of course, people completely losing it. Right. Because that family, you know, as signal to them the decrease of their property values because that one family will bring in other families. And then as more families of that undesirable population will come in, things will only get worse. Um, And so the park 
is this other sacred space outside of the home. Um, mm. We can sort of engage in the preferred and desired behaviors because, of course, the neighborhood park is in our neighborhood. It's either right across the street or a few blocks away. And so if mm-hmm. somebody's coming in there and they're playing loud music um, or engaging in some activity that we don't accept, um, we will, you know, we will respond, forgetting the fact that most parks are public parks. So <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> That's the goal of them, at least in the United States, right, so is that they are public. So that, you know, so yeah. in a neighborhood park in, you know, <laughs> that, that you may be used to using. Um on an everyday basis is still available to every other person that's in the city, whether they're a resident of the city, citizen of the country or not, you know, it's a public park um, and the public park is supposed to be used. And the use of a public park is all dependent upon the features of that park, you know? Um, Right. 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 (laughs) You know, and so, um, I mean, I've never heard or seen people go to a, a complete greenway, um, green, you know, green space park that has no um, other real amenities with their basketball and play invisible basketball. Right. Like that's not going to happen. Right. You're, right. You're going to travel to another basketball court um, anywhere, especially one that has at least a working functioning backboard and hoop. Um, and as we also know that there are these disparities in the upkeep of certain parks. And so oftentimes in certain neighborhood areas, um, the build, the backboard is gone. Uh, the hoop is gone. So you're going to travel with your friends to another location, um, that has a working sort of, um, backboard and hoop to play in because it's still a public park. Um, and you're right. there as long as you're able to. Because some parks have like, you know, time, you know, limit, like such as, you know, being closed at 10 or closed at 11 or the ambiguous uh, signage that says close at dusk. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> I've seen many of those signs in my day. Yes. Like, what does that mean? The beginning of dusk, at the tail end of dusk, uh, you know, um, was it what what happens when you're in Alaska? You know, like, <laughs> what, you know. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, so I appreciate you asking that that follow up. But that's um, I hope that kind of touches on some answers. It does. It does. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia. You know, a place that has a deeply politicized uh, parks and recreation system and just kind of cultural practices and. You know, as you were talking about, you know, the, the theaters and things in, in the parks in the city of Chicago, we had that as well. But it was it is it remains very clear which park theater has programming to attract a predominantly a black or people of color audience and which theater has programming to attract upper middle class to upper class white people. You know, and and so when one kind of steps outside of those traditions, there's a lot of query like, well, why are you here? Why are you here? Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and the the Belmont Plateau, which at one time was a ga- big gathering space for young black people when I was growing up, it was almost as soon as Will Smith put it in a song. <laughs> the park system was like close at dusk. <laughs> And repurposed it for weddings and for other things. Now it's a bookable space. It is no longer a public space. So it's just always interesting to me to kind of reflect upon 
the politic you know the politicizing of these things that should be public wow. and the ways in which some are invited some are disinvited and those subtleties like the signage of close at dusk is like definitely one of those subtleties in which you disinvite people to engage in a space that theoretically should be public space right you know and you know and i think that's one of the areas that may not have been studied or explored you know fully is when we look at the history of a park system where it's not a continuous history. There's different park leadership that has come in with certain philosophies. And sometimes the philosophies yes, were yes. very discriminatory, but some of them, sometimes they weren't um, intentionally to be racially discriminatory. They just ended up, but still having the same impact. Um, mm-hmm. There have been, you know, periods of time when certain things were constructed. There was a certain period when pavilions were now a new feature to put into a park, just as mm-hmm. there appears a time in which a community center all of a sudden was the new thing to put into a park that has not always been these amenities. And so, especially when you start getting into the 90s, people were struggling with, well, do we have common features within all parks or do we right. parks with certain features Understanding mm-hmm. that all parks should be technically available to people. They just need to travel to them. And so you can sort of see just in the physical sort of structure of a park where and when these debates and deliberations took place, right? You know, you have the parks that all have the sort of little bitty hill, a mound, a pavilion, and maybe a little facility, and then an outdoor court. And that outdoor court for one neighborhood may be basketball, another outdoor court in another neighborhood may be tennis. Um, mm-hmm. But there's mm-hmm. no way, you know, you can sort of think about, well, every park should have all their respective you know, amenities, the same amenities, because then you're still operating off of this sort of um, segregated park history in a sense that that neighborhood has everything they need. They never need to, need to leave that park. You know, mm, um, and, that, mm-hmm. and that neighborhood over there has all the money they need and they, and they never need to leave that. But that doesn't quite make sense. You know, does every neighborhood need a dog park? Does every neighborhood need a skate park? You right. Know? So, no, when you start sort of thinking about, well, parks are supposed to be available to every single person who is not only a taxpaying resident of the city or county, but also a visitor. Um, and so forth, then, you know, you, you know, people really have to understand that public parks are for an entire public. Yes. And in, in, <laughs> I always say in concept, they should be. <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the other things, and, and it took me reading your research and just, you know, undergoing some other study around placement of public art. Yes. That I begin to iterate and contextualize on this other topic that you also explore in your research around embedding cultural memory into natural public spaces. Right. Right. (laughs) And how there's a through line with that. And as you describe it, the geographies of race and violence and threat and kind of how sometimes those two things can collide. Yeah. So I'm really interested in you sharing with us, um, what do you see as some important next steps in preserving geographies of race as critical cultural memory? Yeah. So, you know, as James Baldwin said, we are, you know, history is, you know, 
we are a part of history. History is within us. That's a paraphrase yes. of this particular point. But we can't, we can never, you know, separate that reality. And so also the spaces that we've created, um, the spaces that we've now called nature and we've called uh, a public park um, are also inscribed with this history and history of that location uh, or what was there before that location, you know, because in certain cases, certain parks, if we think about, of course, Central Park, Central Park didn't always exist. You know, there was a village uh, that was there. Right. Primarily comprised right. of, of uh, free black people, as well as some immigrants here and there. And of course, they were completely removed to create Central Park. So it's not, you know, so we can, that can never be separated from Central Park. It could be momentarily forgotten, but that reality is always going to be there. Um, and somebody's going to find it, you know, and of course that's what happened. You know, somebody mm-hmm. did a dig and, and ran into people's kitchens that were buried <laughs> within the dirt and that right. the doorway. Um, and so cultural memory are ways in which we can we need to confront that history and make it sort of publicly accessible, just like the space is also still publicly accessible. And that could be through, um, you know, creating art structures um, that could be, you know, through signage that could be created through um, educating staff that will be working within that sort of space and constantly Mm -hmm. educating the public that engage it or all of the above. Um, But that's so vital you know, in terms of having that history that's present there, no matter how beautiful uh, it may be or also how horrible it may be, it needs to be known. It needs to be understood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of Philadelphia, I was just there, you know, recently, and I remember downtown, there's just this, you know, of course, corridor of several different sort of linear park areas, and one of which um, was constructed to be open public space for entertainment and community gathering. Um, but I remember it indicated um, the public began to use it to hang people. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so uh, as part of their recreation activity, which is just as a part unbelievable. Of as a part of their. Recreation. Yes, exactly. This was mm-hmm. around 1820s, like so 1780s to about 18. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to you know, condition the public away from using this public park as their hanging location. Um, Right. And so that history should not be ever separated from planting the flowers and um, doing the music festival at whatever particular time of the year that um, those events will be held in the same location. We need to understand that. Um, we need to know that. And maybe in knowing that, we won't repeat it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and also, we know what society is capable of doing if we don't sort of um, stay attentive. Um, and so, right. so, so cultural memory right. is so, so important. I do always want to sort of iterate that cultural memory, which is part of public memory, is never really history, it's, what, it's just what we select. And so in this case, I'm just suggesting that we broaden what we're selecting. So it's not just this sort of common theme of joyousness, right? The joy will happen, but we do need to recognize the sort of shameful things that have been done in many of these public spaces. Yeah. And I mean, even thinking about where some Confederate monuments and statues have been placed. Yeah. Right. Right. 
and the ways in which those pieces bring forth a, a, a response or a sense of feeling unsafe or threat to people of color. Like you're sitting here looking at, you know, General Robert Lee or in a, in a space in which you really should be able to just kind of relax, right? And so I've been thinking a lot about that as well is, is this the selection around what we honor, but also the ways in which at times there's been an attempt to create new narrative around heroicism and how public spaces end up being, you know, at the nexus of this, you know, or in the center of, of these types of real difficult, but yet important conversations that, yeah, we do need to talk about. There was a space in Philadelphia where people hung people, you know, and, and not hanging in the 20, 21st century pleasant way, like killing people in a public venue and then having social gatherings as a part of that experience. And who were these people that were being, you know, murdered in public view as others celebrated, right? And and same thing with these, you know, Confederate monuments. You know, at what point did someone say, I think it would be a good idea to put this right here in the center of the city and then surround it with this beautifully scaped garden so that when people are doing their leisure activities, you know, they'll they'll always be able to see this heroic image. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it's incredible to me. No, um, and, and I think one of the pieces that I think oftentimes is missing within discussions around the Confederate monuments is that the Confederate monuments are, are only a part of, you know, this massive 80% of most of the monuments and statues within the United States that are all dedicated to war, right? So right. war and militarism right. is the dominant theme associated with most statues and monuments, you know, across the United States, um, which is just astounding. So what does that say about the value order um, of a particular country? Like there is, you know, there's very seldom any statues for reflection and contemplation and right or rest <laughs> just general rest oh, like just rest. somebody laying down taking a nap you know <laughs> yeah yeah so the fact that 80 percent, and i think uh, if i remember correctly i think the total number is something like twenty thousand monuments wow statues, but 80 percent of which are war um and militarism in some particular fashion you know uh and so the confederate um piece is just an additional component within that um, structure. And it's just like, wow, that's, that's astounding. Um, and so exactly, you know, here's a park, a park that's maybe used for reflection, maybe for exercise, maybe for other social gathering, but instead the monument in there is not for reflection, (laughs) you know, or social gathering. It's for something else to sort of maintain or prop up Um, some other sort of value order. And of course, with the Confederacy, the value order, of course, is war and slavery. So, yeah, that is interesting. I guess that's a commission that you and I need to work on is to try to constitute statues of reflections and people reading and just joyousness and having fun or taking a nap or just relaying. Because as I think about that, I'm like, you know what, you're absolutely right. Like, and even if they're not statues of the confederacy they're like roman or greek war statues and it's like why is this here in the middle of a flower garden doesn't make any sense <laughs> right 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 <laughs> it has nothing to, to doesn't fit in with any of what we're doing in this particular part no no 
No. Why does it have to be people? You know, I mean, there's there's all these types of questions that I think are important to have present. Uh, and that kind of gets back to what we were speak, speaking to earlier about the injustice. Mm-hmm. I think if we don't acknowledge injustice, then our response would be uh, remove the Confederate statue and erect another particular statue. And maybe the response is, right, why do we need it? Why do I need a statue? Um, at all. At all. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. You know, why not give children more splash pads to play water with? You know, why not give more adults and others maybe more comfortable seating to sit yes. in a park, not just the, you know, the conventional sort of uh, bus stop park bench, you know? Yes. <laughs> that are yes. Present, you know? Um, I wouldn't mind sitting on a musical swing in a park. Honest to goodness. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, 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 you know, so not, you know, not having the injustice in our face may get us to think about just switching the representation as opposed to like, why do, why do we even need these monuments to like greatness? You know, why can't we just have, something else that serves the function that most people are using the park for in some way. Right. Yeah. That, you know, it's so, I'm now I'm going to spend some time thinking about that because that is so true. You know, is that we say they're public, but they're public with condition, you know, and they're all, it's kind of all these conditions, Mm -hmm. some of them not accessible through public transportation. Some of them difficult for anyone with mobility challenges to get to. That's right. Many of them, probably if we were to do an audit, are under millions of seats that they should have in order to be a comfortable space, you know, for the public to use. It's just it's so interesting, you know, because I still feel like there is this this notion of observe but not engage, you know, like performative, like we have this here for you, but not really, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I like your point of um, the wording of conditional, because it is, it is conditional. But again, if we, you know, go back to thinking about capitalism, the conditional could be until private interest wishes to take the part back. And so that's another thing that we mm-hmm. see where some public parks or public spaces are being um, targeted for, you know, changeover. So either turn into private public space, you know. Right. So there's a new um, condominium structure and this going to be now enclosed next to that new condominium structure and only used by the tenants of the condominium or to be completely sort of given over to someone else. I know in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the big issues that are, that's currently going on is um, there's this massive historical forest preserve that mm-hmm. the mayor um, of the city um, is going to convert into what's unofficially called Cop City. It'll be a police training facility in the forest preserve. So, but this has been without wow. any referendum votes, hasn't been transparently sort of given to, you know, public discussion, you know, and this is unheard of. This is a public you know, space that, you know, if you and I went there to just have a cookout, we couldn't do that without a permit, right? So, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so now, yeah. you're, now you're going to give it up, you know, so one, remove this historic space and erect this sort of large-scale national international training facility for law enforcement. 
but it should remain a forest preserve. If there's monies to build a, a police training center, then there's monies available to right. redevelop that forest preserve to be both conserved. Um, so in many cases, you know, well, on one hand, preserve, which is, you know, preventing human access, but like keeping the species of plants and wildlife there, but conserve on the other end where you want people to maybe come out and use it. Because we, you know, especially within cities, having a large scale space could be a huge benefit for children, for, you know, any one of absolutely. So instead of having to travel miles and miles away, it would be great just to travel still within Atlanta to, to camp out. This space shouldn't be lost. Right, right. And speaking of the concern of, you know, lost space, you know, I've been very adamant with friends, family, my team at work, like we should enjoy these public spaces as much as possible because as we are also negotiating a housing crisis in the United States, we're going to start seeing more, I think, encroachment and the sell-off of private space, I mean, of public space, excuse me, to private interests. Correct. So I'm really like trying to, <laughs> almost like I'm losing time. You know, I'm trying to go to every public beach as, you know, as close as possible to where I live, go to Martha's Vineyard, you know, just run around all over the place. Because even if it's not going to be um, officially turned over, we can see with the building of, you know, very expensive homes, very expensive, as you just identified, condominium and townhouse gated communities that, you know, little by little, we're seeing the closure off of, you know, pub, what was once public space now being very, very private. So I am determined to do some really good things um, in, in the leisure domain this summer. And so that leads to my last question to you. So what are you thinking about doing um, for leisure this year? And, and what would you encourage our listeners to do, you know, as we're in the, I, I hate to say this, but it feels like we're coming close to the wrap up of summer. Right. But what would you encourage our listeners to do for leisure plans and what are you planning to do? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't want to seem like I always do work, but I think, you know, <laughs> you know, if, if you're able, ever able to, you know, travel for the sake of history, you know, and so mm. try to find those locations, whether it's national, state, and city parks that, um, have specific histories that speak to your interests, find them, you know, take pictures of them, keep them, you know, sacred in your mind, you know, put others onto, you know, where they are and what they mean. But of course, there's more than just those parks. I mean, there's other sort of, um, you know, structures and locations, you know, especially there's certain streets, there's certain bus stops that have been marked for a certain historical significance. But I, yes, but, but to travel, you know, for that, you know, for the, for the sake of history. And of course, you know, as you travel for the sake of history, you know, you'll still come in contact with good food and good music and so on. But, you know, try to always, you know, take that time out to, to find those locations. Again, that could be within your own city as well as cities that are nearby or cities far away. Great. And are you going to be partaking that? Or are you going to also still be doing research this summer? So I'm, I, I have been doing both and I will always yes. be to find the time to do uh, both. Excellent. Excellent. Russell, thank you so much for a delightful conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate the exchange. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Slamber.
Thank you for listening to our Toward Inclusive Excellence Summer Session Podcast with Dr. Rasul Mawit, Head of the Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism Management at North Carolina State University. I encourage you to sign up for reminders of new content releases and to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time and support. Be well. Mine will just wait.